You're listening to Vinyl Tap, Inside the Music Industry with Michael Parisi. Welcome back to Vinyl Tap in 2024. In Series 1, which I launched late last year, I spoke to the movers, shakers and visionaries of the industry that I hold in high regard. And in this new series, simply entitled Living Legends, I talked to 10 people who have left an indelible mark on the music industry both here and overseas. These people are giants of the game and are either still playing a part or they have retired. Whatever the case, their stories are both real and inspirational. This is going to be one classy series, so sit back and enjoy the next 10 weeks of Vinyl Tap. Zara Herald is a proper music festival pioneer and a successful tour promoter in her own right. She played a major role in the seminal festival juggernaut we know as the Big Day Out, Australia's and probably the world's first travelling music festival. Today, you'll find her fingerprints on big artist tours like Midnight Oil and Royal Lotus locally, and an artist like Sam Smith and the Chemical Brothers on an international level, and that will be just scratching the surface. While successful, Her journey to this day has had its fair share of ups and downs, as you'll discover in this interview. But the thing about Sahara, however, is that nothing appears to faze her, and to be fair, it never really has. She's an outspoken tour de force and a genuine role model for women in the music industry, and I was lucky enough to hear about her incredible journey and her outlook on business and in life, and let me assure you, no words were minced in the making of this interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my second Living Legend interview in this new series of Vinyl Tap. Okay, and here we are with Sahara at um, Frontier Headquarters, or Mushroom Headquarters, right? Well, Frontier, Mushroom, there's a, a large group of companies within the building, but uh, yeah, for me, it's uh, Frontier Tourist. Now, Sahara, um, I went to every single big day out from the very first to the very last. It was a rite of passage and it was something that um, I was very fond of. Um, and when I think of the big day out, I obviously think of Ken and Viv. Viv was one of my friends pre-big day out. But I also think of you because you're very integral in that in that period or the whole the whole way through essentially that's when I first met you and to be perfectly frank I was quite intimidated by you <laughs> you you meant business it's called the fear of sahara yeah it's real you meant business <laughs> didn't you um yeah look I was there uh, 18 years and you know it was very much my adult working life it was my life's work um as much as it was Ken's and Viv's and you know many other people's too but um for a good majority of that time, I was the only person uh, that worked on the, the show full-time mm. all year round, um, other than uh, a couple of people in Viv's office, uh, Katrina and Susan. And then, of course, you know, our staff would grow over the summer abundantly and uh, ferociously too, like very quickly. But, um, you know, it was an interesting thing to be in it that deeply all the time and it was something I was incredibly proud of but I took really seriously too. Yeah. It was, um, you know, I really kind of dedicated myself to making that show good and I think one of the things in retrospect that I see, you know, quite often when I'm at other festivals or gigs, etc., 
that there'll be, you know, people there using processes at their show that we invented. Yeah. And some that I invented, you know. And just because, you know, we were doing a lot of stuff that hadn't been done before. Well, it paved the way for festivals in this country, totally. full Pati- stop. Particularly a touring festival. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at our height we were the largest touring festival in the world, mm. not just Australia. Mm. And, you know, in that, like, we, there was stuff that we were kind of making up as we went along because, you know, um, and not in a random way, we're just having to figure things out because, sure. you know, we, we didn't have a roadmap to, to what we were doing, um, which was kind of what it made, made it exciting. Sure. Thrilling and sometimes a bit scary Taunting, too. Yeah, we'll spend some time on the big day out, but let's start with you. How did you get involved in music in general, the music business in general? Mm. What 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 were the events, or was there a particular moment in your life where led you down that path? Yeah, there were, I had a couple of sliding door moments. Um, really, I grew up in Brisbane, mm. and um, I guess my my love of music and gigs really started probably when I was about 14 or 15. I was not very happy at school. And uh, for those that know me, they know that I'm physically quite a, a tall person. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was pretty much six foot tall when I was 14. And we're going back in the days pre-digital uh, identification. <laughs> um, and, you know, I had a – let's just say I had a little side business going in uh, – identification. Ah, very, <laughs> but, very clever. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was back in the days where you could uh, – I probably shouldn't even talk about this. We're talking about fake licences essentially. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> you want to be that clear about it? Sure. Um, but I was able to get into gigs, you know, a lot because, you know, there wasn't photo ID. I was very tall. And that kind of became my little, um, you know, where I found my people really mm. and started – going to, you know, live gigs really early on in licensed premises. So I was getting to see some really amazing bands. Um, and then... Well, let's talk about the era. What, what kind of bands are we talking about? Okay. So, well, my, my, first, my first show that I ever went to accompanied, um, it was like 12 or 13, was David Bowie mm. at Lang Park. And I went with my best friend and her mother escorted it. And then my first gig that I went to unaccompanied by a parent, uh, the University of Queensland used to put on these shows called Joint Efforts and they were kind of, you know, a mixed bill of different artists and um, they had the Hoodoo Gurus playing with uh-huh. And I can't remember who else was on the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of ironic. Yes, we'll, talk, <laughs> we'll come to that. We'll too. get to that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, and I just remember just you know, being in that audience and just feeling this incredible, you know, really kinetic energy, like it was, you know, you could feel it in the air. And I remember going to school the next day and having um, that ringing that you would get in your ears because, of course, you know, I didn't have any ear protection. What? You know, no one did that back then. Of course. And you'd be sitting in, you know, history class kind of with this buzz in your ear and, feeling a little bit cocky that you had kind of had had this, you know, special moment that no one else knew about. And uh, that buzzing would usually, uh, the ringing would fade after a day or two. 
But uh, unfortunately, there came a time where it never went away. Yes. That's a little bit further down the track, but back then. Um, but yeah, then I, uh, I was at uh, the University of Queensland studying there and uh, had a night job working in a public bar under the, uh, the Maya Centre in the city and had a bistro attached to it and another, another bar, you know, um, within the centre. And, you know, I was just working there on a you know, Tuesday night. You know, the bar would be full of, you know, diggers drinking dollar pots, mm. you know. And they had uh, uh, this brand new thing called a video jukebox, right. which um, they let me program. And uh, so I kind of had fun with that. But then, you know, a lot of my mates would come in and they were all, you know, we were like 19, 20. Uh, a lot of us, you know, either, you know, playing in bands or, you know, doing, you know yeah. but all very kind of low key. And the guy that uh, had bought that venue recently, who I did not know, uh, had turned up one particular night um, and I had been, he caught me doing something at work which was not the work that I was paid for. Right. Uh, me and uh, a group of mates from uni had been putting together this fanzine called Bums. Right. Brisbane underground music scene. Right. As in, as in your, the first version of Street Press in mm -hmm. Brisbane? Yeah. Oh, you know, well, there was time I'm off. Time off as well, yeah, right. I think rave back then. But, yeah, yeah. it was a little free fanzine. Yeah. Um, which, we, you know, kind of started off, you know, not almost like a uni project really, but, it, you know, we kept it going for a couple of years mm. and it would um, had advertising in there from right. all the little local clubs and record stores and stuff. And we used to, um, you know, one of the guys, I think his dad had a home printing press yeah, right. This is very pre-digital, yeah, no right. internet, etc. And we used to, you know, lay it all out, print it off, and we would then divide it up, like to take home, collate it, fold it, and then deliver it to all the little record stores because there was still a lot there, I, a yeah. lot of well, fantastic one of those, little. I remember those fold-out ones. I yeah. think I, I kind of, I think I remember that magazine. It was good, it was. and you know, um, and it was a big gig guide in there too, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and you know, we do album reviews and uh, live reviews and stuff. And um, anyway, that guy, the new owner, turned up that night and I had taken my portion. <laughs> I was sitting there on a Tuesday night and he sprung me doing obviously not my job yeah. and with no, you know, like I literally had ink on my fingers <laughs> and smudges <laughs> on my face. And I thought, fuck, I'm about to be fired for sure. And... His, name's, his name was James May. He was a very eccentric character and I could probably look back now and say that he had ADHD right. or something. He was very, you know, uh, frantic. And anyway, he was looking through that magazine like, what's this, what's this? And that particular issue, I had quite a lot of interviews in there, which wasn't necessarily all the case. We rotated, right. et cetera. Right. And he was like, oh, you know, do you know these people? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And when you say people, the bands you're writing about. Yeah, they right. were my flatmates. Yeah, right. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know them. And he's like, oh, because I think, you know, kind of put, I think I might put bands on in the bistro. It's not working there. Hmm. You can help book it. I was right. like, okay. And, yeah, I think I was like 20 or something. And right in that moment, you know, two minutes beforehand, I thought I was about to be fired. Fired. 
and then suddenly, you know, was helping. You're booking a venue. Yeah. What was that venue called? There were two. One was called Metropolis. Yes. And the other was Bertie's. I went to Metropolis a few times. Yeah. I saw uh, Regurgitator there. Yeah. Mm. And it was, you know, we did some great gigs. And then yeah. there were a couple of, you know, um, other guys in in the picture, you know, um, Johnny Griffin, legendary uh, DJ, Ian Whitred. Um, oh, Ian, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, went, he went on to work with Tamago. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. So I was working with Johnny and Ian mm-hmm. and then um, Ian, would, you know, left to take that position and then, you know, Peter Walsh was there who, you know, Livid. was then starting Livid. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Curtis delivered a lot of shows and, you know, we used to put on some interesting things, yeah, you, you did. know, Rock Against Work, which was a, a new concept back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we used to put on, you know, Friday afternoon, you know, three, four bands, you know, dollar drinks, all the uni students yeah. that come in, you know. Um, but that became a really... You know, as I was saying, it was pre-internet, etc. So what I used to do, uh, and I kind of had my own little booking agency. So I was the local rep for a lot of half a cow bands. You know, um, Smudge, Daisy Grinders, mm. Godstar. What a time, eh? Yeah. What a time. I know. For music. And so I would once a month go down to Sydney, and to see bands play. Right. You know, and kind of you know. Um, to see bands in order to bring them back to Brisbane, right? Mm. Just checking out, yeah, checking, checking out, bands doing A&R. And, yeah, mm. and also just kind of really building those connections. And some of those people that I met during that time are still some of my closest friends. Um, you know, Alana Rasak from The Hummingbirds. Hummingbirds yeah. And, you know, when I first moved to Sydney, she and I got a place together and, you know, um, had a bachelorette pad in North Bondi for a while where lots of hijinks. Yes, yeah, so those walls could talk. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they knocked that building down, thankfully. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, that – So um, and I became the, like, local promoter rep for promoters bringing shows to Brisbane, hmm. such as Steve Pav, um, Ken West, Leeson West. And in those days that kind of went – you know, literally, you know, putting flyers out, um, posters up, we would get hard tickets printed. Yes. And put them in the record store and then you'd have to go and collect them. But, you know, I was the bag lady <laughs> collecting the yeah, money. Oh, I remember. And mailing lists had actual people's home addresses. Yeah. Right? There was no – and phone numbers. All of there that. was no internet. No. Right? No. To speak of. And it was a really amazing time mm. to be – and it was – if you picture this, it's the early 90s, just – a little bit pre-Nirvana, but leading up to that. Yes. Um, but then there was another really seminal moment for me that changed my trajectory. Um, I had a show booked in at Metropolis with Die Pretty, and it was their Doughboy Hollow era. Um, they're riding on a wave. I'd had them in there a couple of times before, but I had this sold-out show. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from their agent at... Uh, Which would have been John Needham potentially or not? Mm-hmm. No. No, he was managing. That's right, he was managing. Yeah, so uh, a, a, let's just say a uh, gentleman's probably a loose term. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes. Someone at the Harbour Agency. Yes, I, I've already worked it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who basically rang up and tried to blackmail me. Um said that if I wanted to keep that sold-out Died Pretty show at the venue, uh, that I had to take a gig of another artist of his who was Colette. 
as in ring my bell, soapy star in fluoro tux, you know. On the same bill or another no, night? No, like another night. Okay. So I've got the like the coolest rock club in town. And you wanted to put Colette in that Colette same Colette there and wanted me to pay, a, you know, at the time a ridiculous guarantee and was, you know, pretty, uh, a, you know, semi-abusive on the phone and then hung up on me and I had... I was left sitting there going, what? Like, man. And I was sitting there thinking, God, I bet the guys in Died Pretty don't know that they're being used as, you know, blackmail collateral in, you know. I sat there a moment longer going, yeah, I, I bet they don't know. And I thought about it and I knew it was a big risk to take. But, you know, the thing that that agent didn't know was that I'd become mates with all these people. Of course. You know, I looked after them so well when they were in Brisbane, in the club. But then, you know, when I came down to Sydney, we'd all go to dinner, go yeah, to gigs together. Yeah, you became together. friends. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I I picked up the phone to Brett Myers mm-hmm. and Ron Pino, mm-hmm. RIP, and told them what about that phone call. And they were both, like, outraged. They would have been. They would have been shocked. Yeah, like, you know. And basically said, leave it with us, we'll sort this out. And about, um, you know, let's say 24 hours, 48 hours later, I got a a phone call from that agent and I could hear his gritted teeth. Probably seething, right? (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like, hang on, I have to put you on speaker. And put himself on speaker, Mm -hmm. me on speaker, and Ron and Brett were there with him. In the room. Yeah. Yeah, right. Basically standing over him made him apologise and, you know, take back what he had said and assure me that I still had the died pretty gig and that I didn't have to take the collect gig and, yeah, anyway. So I kind of really didn't think much more of that other than, okay, you know, I I took a risk there that could have backfired pretty badly as well. Um, But it didn't. And then a couple of days later I got a phone call from Ken West who I had not actually really met before. I'd been working on some of his shows, but in a very, you know, low-level way, you know, doing the sure. merch or, sure. you know, um, you know, running the door or doing riders or whatever. And anyway, he rang me up and he'd heard a about story. this story. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he did – he had a, a very well-known loathing of, you know, uh, the commercial world, so to speak. Yeah, particularly the, main, the mainstream world. Yeah, so well, he saw, you know, to him at that point, he kind of felt that there was, you know, a level of music mafia, like, yes. and yes. you know, he was, that guy was trying to blackmail me, mm. so he wasn't mm. wrong. Yeah, um, he thought it was hysterical, um, and he was just laughing. He's like, "That is so great! I think we should next time I'm in Brisbane, let's, let's grab a coffee." Off. Yeah. And, yeah, that kind of led to, you know, I moved to Sydney, I think, the year after and uh, started work at the Big Day Out. Um, and, yeah, Ken had kind of got me in and, and Kate Stewart, actually. She got me in there first and worked that summer. Then Ken asked me to come back in um, to help him with some <laughs> some filing and photocopying and I stayed 18 years. Wow. Yeah. So other than Ken and uh, and Kate, I guess, who taught you the ropes? Did you have people to look up to or mentors, if one, one of a better word, or did you just learn as you went along? No. Like most people in, in, that, in that scene. Yeah, well, and particularly at that time. Yeah. And 
Um, there were no rules, were there? Like you had to make it up, almost make it up as you, as you went along. Yeah, well, and particularly because things were changing very quickly. Mm. It's like, you know, suddenly you've got, oh, what's this thing called Excel? Oh, yeah, <laughs> Spreadsheets. Of course, of course. You know? yeah, yeah. Some, I, me- I remember someone showing me how to add an extra column. Yeah. It's like, whoa. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we're talking back in the days it's pre-internet and, you know, we would go into the office early in the morning to see what had come in on the fax I mean, overnight. But, and, and the telex before that, yeah, potentially. Yeah, that you know? was a little bit before me, yeah. the telex, <laughs> but we, we were definitely in the fax era and that would be coming in to see, you know, what band might have confirmed overnight yeah. or cancelled. You yeah. never knew, yeah. you know, things like that happened. But it was, um, no, I didn't. I, look, one one person I probably do need to get give credit to was my dad who was um, a very renowned logistics wizard. Right. And I think for me there was a lot that I had, uh, you know, learnt from him via osmosis that I just – I had a really sharp brain. Analytical, analytical brain. About, you know, the, the cause and effect, okay, this needs to happen here before that can happen there. Right, right. And being able to, you know, really look at the, the order of things and the consequence of action, et cetera, and – I think, you know, me applying that side of my brain to our business certainly helped with, you know, getting some of those systems in place. While it was, you know, would seem like the big day out was very chaotic and in some regard it was, you oh, know. Oh, yeah, and absolutely it would have been. Yeah. And, the first and, one would have been complete, or the first one appeared chaotic from as a punter. Yeah. It was like. But, you know, that was part of the magic, it was, really. It and was. certainly that was very much Ken. You know, he loved that chaos. And I guess I, in some regard I was the flip side of that, of bringing some order to it to actually make things happen. Now, had the Big Day Out started when you started working for Ken or was, were they still doing their, you know, their, well, they did the biggest alternative act tours in, in the country, right? Yeah. So I had worked on a lot of those tours and then... Things like, um, just give people some context, people, Jesus and Mary Chain, I remember going... Billy Bragg, God, EMF. There were quite a few. They yeah. did all the cool tours. They certainly the did. Yeah. And, you know, I worked on some of them. I certainly went to a lot of them. Mm. But, um, no, I didn't move to Sydney till 94. So I worked uh, – so the 1992 Big Day Out, which was the first one, first which one. was Sydney only. Yes. Um, which was incredible, by the way. Yeah. It was like, no it, need to boast, mate. It was life-changing. <laughs> it was life-changing. I wasn't there. Um, I was doing something cool, though. On that night, by coincidence, I was in America and I was in Boston and I was out at dinner uh, with Evan Dando and we were going to see a gig at a little club there called TT the Bears um, to see Matthew Sweet play. Oh. Yeah. So uh, there was me, Evan, his cousin Eric and my cousin Sasha and uh, we'd gone to dinner, went to this show, and I remember I was standing there with Evan and he was like kind of nudging me in the ribs, like, look over here. Look. I was like, what, what? And then I kind of looked across and Richard Lloyd was standing next to yeah. Richard from uh, television. Television, yeah. And um, so anyway, after that, Matthew Sweet had uh, like a warehouse around the corner that he had been recording in. And we all went back there and the guys were like sitting around jamming and, you know, it was pretty weird. Like I, I was, I was a little bit stoned, to be honest. You had a fantastic um, single called. Was it called Girlfriend? Girlfriend. Yeah. yeah what a great song that yeah, was. Yeah, he was oh, such a gifted artist, yeah. and it would have been so much bigger. He had a real, yeah. from my memory, he had a fear of flying. 
yes. which is why he didn't tour that much. But it was pretty surreal to be sitting there. It was like Richard Lloyd, Evan Dando and Matthew Sweet just you wow. know, sitting around, you know, jamming, making making shit up. And, While Nirvana you know, was playing back in Sydney, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. So I missed that. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then 93 I went, I went to the show in Sydney as a, a – uh, a VIF, as it was called then, a very important freeloader. <laughs> um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, been looked after and had a, a bit of a pass and just, you know, had a great day actually and then then started working on And then on off, it. off you went. Yeah, and to the younger after. listeners listening to this podcast, I don't think people realise how, and we touched on it earlier, how impactful Big Day Out was, you know, and to this day probably probably unmatched in terms of the, the you know the travelling circus that it was, but it worked, didn't it? It was just a big it one, did. Of those, one of those cultural events that will go down in history, I think, as one of the most influential you know oh events, I, I th- events I think of, with, of our generation, doubt. yeah, without doubt, um, so influential, you know, set benchmarks in so many different ways, but was you know. Um, it created something new mm. um, that took up. You know, space and energy and time, and that people looked forward to, and that was one of the things that we really loved—that we built something that gave people hope. You know, like it gave you know, but um, you know, one one of one of the things that was really interesting—I'll just jump into this for a moment sure. because it was very, the concept was kind of new. There were, you know. Things are popping up in America and like, yeah, like Lollapalooza, for that's example. That's right, yeah. and you know, Liberty Festival, etc. Mm. But the Big Day Out was one of the first really touring festivals. Yes, and because of course, Liberty predated it, right? Which was a great event as well, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but that at that stage it was just Brisbane, wasn't just it? Just Brisbane. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things to have to, and to be able to get, you know. These a bunch of cool acts together that actually wanted to play on the same bill with each other. That was really part of the dynamic, and that was Ken's, you know, work there. That he just he kind of had that you know creative vision of bringing people together in that way, not just the punters but the artists. Um, but one of the just in the uh, financial sense of that. One of the things that it created, which, um, you know, pre-Big Day Out, any of those international artists coming out on their own, you know, would be anywhere from a, a $30 ticket to a $60 ticket, depending on who it was back then. Mm. Um, and, you know, we were putting a whole show on with, you know, so many artists for, you know, Back then, 80, 90. I remember, you know, when we reached the $100 mark, mark, that was the, you know, we held off from that for a long time. But, you know, for, you know, the first number of years, it was well under $100. But it's set up over the years this uh, precedent, I guess, that there were people that were going to the big day out that did not know live music before the big day out. Yes. So they weren't necessarily seeing the value in the ticket price. So we'd announce like, hey, we've got this, this and that, you know, like 10 international acts, 10 awesome, you know, Australian, New Zealand acts, and they'd go, 
and yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know. Um, so what you're saying is they didn't understand the value of the discovery yeah. element of what the big day I've brought to the table. Yeah, because it, I, but I discovered also the so. financial element, yeah, the financial value right, right, that right, you know right. any of those artists. If you sought them singly, you'd probably be paying the same, same price, price or, yeah. you know, gotcha. marginally cheaper. And there were years actually where some of the artists that we had on um, Metallica and I think Rage Against the Machine, their sideshows at the Sydney Entertainment Centre oh God, yeah. were more expensive than the, the big, big day, day out, out ticket. Which is madness. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, go on. So it kind of it set up this expectation of value mm. and the demand for, you know, is that it? We want more. Um, whereas in the early years, people go, how amazing is this? But as the years went on, you know, you had kids coming to the show who are now 18, but, you know, they weren't going to gigs six years beforehand. They were gotcha. too young. Gotcha. So, and I think that has been an ongoing um, expectation in Australian audiences that Big Day Out set, started to set um, you know, particularly for festivals that they there's a high expectation of course of you know wanting value for money and what's being delivered. And it's not just with the actual acts, it's you know what's on site as well. Yeah, that's right. And one of the great things about the big day out was the other stuff, you know, such as the Lily World. Lilypad. Yeah. Yeah. Bless them. Yeah. <laughs> they started off as you know, the ambience team and they were, you know, very much uh, free reeling throughout the site yeah. doing, you know, all manner of uh, odd scenarios, etc., and kind of bringing a bit of, you know, laughter and levity and, and light to, to the show. But, you know, then it became, you know, their own stage, you know, Lily Pad, which then became Lily World. Yeah, 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 yeah. And no one was paying $120 to see Duck Pond doing nude Duck aerobics, Pond, you know. But so much fun. They were really glad it was there. Yeah. You know, and that was one of the things that Ken always prioritised within the show was having those elements that no one's paying to see but yeah. and sometimes are expensive to deliver, but everyone's glad that it's there. And well, that might be, you know, the lily pad, you know, um, art installations, yep. the triclops, you know, who oh, course, did, yeah. you know, all the kind of uh, mechanical, you know, fire-breathing robots and dinosaurs and stuff. And, yeah, there was, you know, a lot of that stuff. And, you know, like the uh, skating that we used to have, John Fox. I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing about the Big Day Out is that I always saw it as a meeting of the tribes. So you could have your indie kids, your hard rock kids, your techno kids, you know, your roots kids. It was a real meeting of the minds and a meeting of the tribes. And there was something for everybody, but it worked. You know, you'd think, how can you put people who like Sepultura in with people who like Chemical Brothers? It just worked, didn't it? It did work. And it was really interesting over the years. Um, we had a very different audience when we were at the, um, using Sydney as the example, uh, primarily because that's where we had the biggest change in regard to venue that we'd gone from uh, the showgrounds in Paddington at Moore Park mm. um, to Homebush. Homebush, yeah. And that was a big move, uh, not just geographically, but optically as well. Yeah. You know, kind of going from inner city, 
cool kids, indie kids. Which we loved. We loved yeah. being in Indian city. I mean, you know, all oh. of our team basically lived in the eastern suburbs yes. of Sydney, you yes. know, um, to Homebush, which, you know, probably still is, but certainly then was the geographic centre of Sydney. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that came from that was that the um, we had a bigger venue and the show, you know, grew and grew, grew mm. you know, numbers-wise. And there came a point where we started to recognise that, you know, you've got 60,000 people there. They're not all necessarily there because they're music fans. Yes. You know, they were there as an experience, you know. it was, yeah. um, And that changed the kind of dynamic of the audience, their behaviour. Yes, um, which we'll get to. Yeah. But, yeah, I remember that, that, that period. Programming the Big Doubt would have been in a lot of fun. <laughs> with the with with all of you in there, what was a programming meeting like, and deciding on who the lineup would be any given year, keeping in mind that every man and his dog, particularly Australian managers, Australian labels, one of their acts on there. I'd, I'd go and pitch Ken uh, Ken and Viv actually sometimes, and you know there'll be a queue of people wait, literally waiting to to do a pitch, and it wasn't about that. It was whatever you know you guys felt was right at the time, right? Yeah, and look, one of the things, um, and, you know, this came from Ken primarily, but I know Viv, you know, believed in this too and I did as well, that we didn't see it as our job to just do what was popular or yeah, that's right. what, you know, the kids thought thought that they wanted. We, we felt that there was a responsibility to bring things to the table that they may not necessarily see else, elsewhere, yeah, elsewhere. Mm. or... Um, that may be challenging or, you know, is going to open up a different perspective. And so, and it was around finding a balance within the show. Mm. Um, and that was to, you know, attract the, the different tribes. But also, uh, you know, one of the mm. things that we worked at behind the scenes a lot um, and which I put a lot of time into as well was maintaining, trying to maintain a, a, within the audience a, a gender balance. And not for it just to be a show for blokes. Yeah. Was there a moment in the Big Day Out's history where you thought it was getting a bit out of control and it was getting too big? And I, I'm assuming here that it was probably the Limp Biscuit Big Day Out where, you know, everyone, you know, Jessica passed away. And it was at the point where you thought, shit, what's going on here? This is out of control. This is getting too big and too unmanageable. That's what it looked, that's what it looked like from the outside looking in. Yeah, I think you're pretty on the money. Uh, look, there was a big change. You know, we had uh, the 98 year off. There wasn't a show. That's right. And that was primarily because Rupert Murdoch had bought the showgrounds at Paddington. The new showgrounds out at Homebush hadn't yet been built. And, you know, without Sydney as the kind of cornerstone, you know, the tour is, you know, not financially viable without Sydney. Mm. Um, and we accepted that that was, that was it. You know, we had a nice run and we were going to go on and do other things. You know, the artwork in 97 actually had six and out on it. Um, That's right. And then uh, we, we, we did try to do another show in 98 called Starbait with Prodigy and, and it just didn't work. Yeah. We ended up cancelling that. We still did shows with the Prodigy and then... Very early in, 
in 98. So those shows were in January of 98. I think it was either February or March. Ken and I went out to the new showgrounds. We'd been invited out by the show, you know, RAS to have a look. It was still very much a construction site, hard hat area. And we were out there and looking around going, oh, man, this is actually going to be good, you know. And also very aware that over When the you say good, you mean big enough for the event you were envisaging? Big enough. The facilities are there. Mm. They were building a train station yeah, right at so. the venue. Um, it made sense on paper. Yeah. Mm. And it had you know big enough spaces for us to be able to present the show, you know, whether that's the main stages or all the other ones. Mm. But... You know, the other thing that we were very aware of, and I know Viv was too, was that we had over the previous number of years kind of carved out this period in January, particularly for international artists, that they were like, hey, you know, we want to be part of the big day off, go to Australia for a couple of weeks, have the time of our life. And there was nothing at that point that would sell you more records in this territory than playing the big day out. Very so, true, very true. Yeah, so record companies would want those <coughs> artists to come here at that time to be a part of, etc. And, of course, it uh, labels, managers, agents, artists, they had all started you know, planning that into an artist cycle. Okay, we're going to record here, release the album here, do promo, play the big, big day, day out, out, everything. You Announce know. our tour off the back of Big Day Out, our own tour, yeah, all That's the time. It. There was a There was a yeah. blueprint. So there was suddenly a gap that we were very aware that other promoters were circling. Everyone wanted their own festival. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we made the decision to roll the dice and, um, yeah, to give it another go. So our first year out there was 99. And it was big. Um, I think it was that was Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Manson and yeah. Hole. And, you know, we sold out really quickly. The show was, you know, the biggest that we'd done. Um, I must say on a personal note for me, it was really um, interesting. It was a, a test event for the Sydney Olympics, which was in 2000. So right. we were one of the very first events in that precinct. And uh, my, my dad, who I mentioned earlier, who was a logistics wizard, he was um, heading up. Uh, Orta, the Olympic Road and Transport Authority. Right. And as their first test event, you know, I was going to stakeholder meetings with my dad at the other end of the table. It was the, the only time that we actually got to work together, but it was pretty special. And had your dad been to the big day out previously? Yeah, yeah. but he, he came religiously after oh, that. okay, okay. Um, he loved the lily pad. Really? <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he just found it vastly entertaining. It takes know. a certain person to love a lily pad. I know, pad. he would, yeah. But he was, he was, you know, he was immensely proud, not just of me, but, you know, our whole team and what we were achieving and delivering and stuff too. There was a point, though, where, you know, for him, he could see that it was taking a toll on me. Yeah. And that, that pride turned into concern. Yeah, right. And we'll get to that too. But... Let's talk about the Limp Bizkit gig. Was that kind of like, did you see it now in, in retrospect, in hindsight, was that the beginning of the end for the Big Doubt, do you think? Or the beginning of the end of the Viv, Vivian Lee's Ken relationship? Did that put a stress on things? Oh, it put a, a terrible stress on all of us. You know, mm. the, you know the background there was that we had... Um, uh, Viv was uh, at Roskilde. Mm. Um, 
when Pearl Jam had mm-hmm. that misfor- you know, the misfortune. Yep. Of, yeah, that was terrible. And he had had a meeting with them, you know, prior to that and pretty much done a, a handshake deal for them, you know, to be headlining the next big day out in the summer of uh, 2001. And, yeah, they went on stage and ended in tragedy and, you know, quite a number of people died and others injured and uh, Pearl Jam pretty much, you know, swore that they would never play another festival again. It, it really shook them, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, and we were, and I, you know, I guess that was in like, when's Ross Guild in late July? Mm. And we announced in September. So we suddenly lost a headliner mm. and we're scrambling. And, you know, Limp Biscuit were suddenly, you know, big at the time. Were they any of our first choice? Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Of course. You know, we, you know, I, it was not, it was not a, a decision I was in favour of. Um, but, you know, sometimes you make decisions based on what you know at that time. Sure. You know, none of us foresaw what would happen. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was certainly changed what the big day out was, particularly publicly, because up till then we had had very little bad press. We were still kind of media darlings and to some degree we're still quite below the radar in some regard. Yeah. And then suddenly we that were on... Change things. Yeah, the front page mm. of every newspaper and not in a good way. Um, and was the lead story on every news bulletin and was, you know, and this was all unfolding while we're still, you know, putting a show on and none of us had ever dealt with something like that before, you know, dealing with a tragedy of that magnitude, you know, there's no kind of handbook, Um, you know, even for just on a publicity level, like, you know, our publicist, Viv Fanton, who's, one of the best in the business, mm. um, you know, she was suddenly faced with, you know, media that she'd been mates with for years were suddenly on the wanting really... A- wanting answers. Yeah. Oh, but on a really aggressive mm. attack mode. Right. Um, so, you know, we sat through an 18-month coronial inquest, um, which was very challenging on lots of levels, but, yeah. you know, just also this deep, deep sadness. I mean, no, you know, we, we, we were bringing a show to people to bring them joy. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, ended in tragedy that day. And Jessica, you know, Mikulik, she, she did nothing wrong, mm. full stop. Mm. You know, it was, I would hear people say, you know, they were questioning whether she had drunk or drugged. Or, sure. She did not. Mm. Oh, she got separated from her friends. Mm. You know, no. there's, there was, a, you know, a lot of kind of shady blame being thrown here and there. Mm. She, was, she was a young person that went out to have a good time that day and didn't come home. Terrible. Um, and, you know, for me personally... Yeah, that, I was going to ask you how did it affect you personally and, yeah. and affect you moving forward with the big day out. Mm. So my uh, eldest daughter, Madeline, had died three months beforehand. So those two events for me became quite enmeshed, you know, like this grief that, um, you know, I didn't know what to do with. Mm. I, you know, my, my parents didn't 
teach me how to open a bank account, let alone bury a child. Terrible. That's not blaming them at all, but, you know, it just was not something that, you know, was spoken about. And I pretty much went back to work the day after her funeral because I didn't know what else to do, you know, and work was my safe haven and where I felt I had some level of control. And then a few months later, Jessica died. And I think for me it kind of flipped this switch where in my head I felt like I'd handed control over to others and that it had ended in tragedy both times. Mm. Um, And for me I became really over-invested in the show. Like had my sticky fingers in every part of it. Um, And the show grew, you know, like and was... And is that was was that a coping mechanism for you? Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah. I didn't, you know, at that point, I just I had this uh, unimaginable grief and also this burden of, you know, of my own perception of, you know, I felt this level of guilt and blame and shame, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily logical, but mm. that's what I felt at the time. That yeah. I, I felt a level of responsibility around those those two things and they came you know the grief became very entwined for me yeah and and did the grief manifest in other ways eventually yeah right yeah um i certainly you know was overly invested in the show running the show making Mm. the show that the show was right all the time you know and ken and i used to joke is probably not quite the right word but you know there was a period where you know Ken loved the chaos and he liked to try and, you know, blow the show up every now and again and I would fix it, (laughs) you know. Um, I kind of saw that as my job, you know, to, you know, make sure that everything was running smoothly and that was probably about the only things that he and I used to fight over. He he wanted to shut the show down and I kept propping it up. Um, But for me, the way that I was working, you know, I was a workaholic Mm. and that was... Uh, you know, not sustainable, really. And I think that grief that I talked about that I'd been carrying around eventually started to catch up with me. Yeah, and um, impact on your self-care as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I started, you know, self-medicating. Yes. And I don't – at the time it wasn't a conscious thing. Mm. I was just doing what, you know, I had to do to kind of cope with – and by this stage the show's got really big. Yeah. So – and there's so many stakeholders and vested interests and, you know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, bands, man, you know, everyone wanting a piece and, mm. and feeling and being reliant on it in different ways too, like people's livelihoods, bands' livelihoods, etc. So there were a lot of, you know, forces involved and I, yeah, I started um, drinking in a way that wasn't healthy mm. and it was really easy for that to fly the, below the radar for some time, particularly in our industry, because it's just everywhere. It's everywhere. And mm. you know, I would uh, I would be hosting our big day out after party, and um, you know, and then I would go back to my hotel room and continue. Mm. Um, and for a long time, you know. It, it was okay. It was kind of, you know, um, it was... It was part of the fun, right? It was all well, part of the... Well, yeah, it the wasn't, movie, you know, and I was circus. hanging around with people that were kind of doing the same thing. Mm. Um, but then it reached a, a point. I don't think I realised I had a problem until I tried to stop yeah, and right. found that I couldn't. Right. Um, and, you know, eventually, you know, our alcoholism is a, a progressive condition. It is. And, you know, I had been very high functioning for a long time and then suddenly I wasn't. 
and you know became a liability. Yeah. Um, you know. But to your credit, you've you've come out of that stronger and better than ever. How did you? How did you get yourself better? Yeah. So I. I tried. <laughs> I thought I could outthink it. I thought, me and my big brain, I'm so clever. Um, and it's not, it uh, wasn't a matter of willpower. And I think that's where I, w- I kept, you know, trying and failing because I thought, mm. you know, I'm Sahara from the Bajau. I make shit happen. I'm unbreakable. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I can fix this like I fix everything else. And I couldn't. And it wasn't until I got to a point where I had a willingness to ask for help and to accept it, that was the big thing. Mm. And for a, for a period before that, I had been, um, I went to a couple of different detoxes and rehabs, basically to keep people off my back, mm. and had gone, uh, you know, done some uh, 12 step type of uh, meetings and work. Um, but it was all, yeah, I was just doing work I could get away with, you know, to so people would stop bugging me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and things didn't really change for me until I had a willingness to change myself, that I I wasn't doing it for someone else, I was doing it for me because uh, for the first time in a long time I wanted to live. Yes. And I hadn't cared for a while. And that Mm. makes me really sad to say out loud. But, um, you know, there'd be days I'd be waking up and be disappointed that I'd made it through the night. Mm. I woke up this particular day and I wanted to live, but I didn't want to keep living the way that I was. So, yeah, I gave recovery another go and that was just over 10 years ago. That's I just, amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, thank That's so you. Good. Just clocked up a, a decade of unbroken that is, that is sobriety. In, that is incredible. Um, it, it changes your life, right? When you, when oh, completely. Mm. And it's given me just a different life too. You know, I, I, I didn't know whether I could work in this industry as a, you know, a sober person. I, I had fear around, you know, that... Of course. Because um, I know certainly I always, you know, didn't trust people who didn't drink. <laughs> of course. Um, and I also thought that, you know, I would be on the outer, like I wouldn't be invited to things or that, you know, there were being, you know, deals done, you know, guys sitting around in a bar at 3am and maybe there are. Still. <laughs> Still. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there are. Yeah. But there what came to unfold over time was quite interesting that, um, you know, artists and agents and managers, et cetera, started to seek me out because I was sober and they knew, then they saw the evidence of the work that I was doing, um, that, you know, I was reliable, <laughs> accountable. I followed through on everything I said I was going to So do. the real Sahara came out. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. leading their artist astray. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I was, I was very fortunate to have um, some people that, you know, backed me. Which is you great. Know, yeah. And, you know, primarily, you know, M- Michael Harrison and Matt Gadinsky and Michael, obviously, yes. MG, and also Dion Brandt, who's now CEO. Um and Colleen Ironside, bless, who's also passed, and Alana Gilbert. You. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Alana, you put Alana, yeah. who passed recently too. Yeah. So you know that they took a punch on me. That you know, I mean, Gadinsky used to joke about it because he was a gambling man. He was, yeah. he got me cheap out of rehab, <laughs> and uh, he, you know, he, t- he took a, a, a punt that I'd come good. You know, mm-hmm. and um, 
And I, you know, and I did, but I, I worked really hard, hard at it. Hard to get there, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, and it's something that I still, you know, recover is my first priority every day. Of course. Um, I used to try and fit it into my life, and now I fit my life around it. Around it, yeah. which is great. And it means that I have somehow an abundance of time um, and energy. And, like, and, and it's positive time, isn't it? Yeah, like, like I get to, you know, I, I live a really big rambunctious life that I love and you know I have I work with amazing people you know within the mushroom group within frontier but also externally as well but you know my recovery life is what probably nourishes me the most Mm. and I you know I get to work with a lot of other uh particularly women that you know Mm. that uh are on that journey and um Certainly wasn't why I got sober, but it's one of the reasons I stay sober. sober, And particularly for me, the relationships that I rebuilt, you know, whether that's with my youngest daughter, Drew, you know, my ex-husband, Brad, et cetera, who's now married to someone else. But, you know, we're we're great mates to the point where, you know, I promoted the Huda Guru's 40th anniversary. Oh, did you really? Yeah. (laughs) And they came to me wanting to work with me, which is... You know, that's a, a lovely kind of full circle moment. It seems like you did have strong male role models right through your life, right? Ken, mm. who sadly passed away. Yeah. And then Gadinsky, who yeah. again sadly passed away. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my I had my, you know, my dad. Uh, but, oh, you know, and, and I was going to say, and your father, of course, yeah. right through, through the whole yeah. journey. And those three men died within uh, two years of each other. Oh, so wow. it went my dad, MG, Ken, like bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. Um, How did that impact you? Oh. In, 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 in your, you know, in your sobriety as well. Well, you know, it was an interesting time being, you know, all pretty much during some type of lockdown. Mm. You know, my dad died in 2020. Um MG in 21 and Ken in 22. 22, yeah. Um, basically a year after each other. And I was really well held by colleagues, but also um, my recovery community. In your program, right? Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that, you know, I had been shown by, you know, other uh, older sober members was that, you know, you put recovery first no matter what, whether it's good or bad, you know. So um, I was, I didn't let go of any of that stuff to the point where, you know, at that point we had um, taken 12-step uh, meetings online because everything was on lockdown. Yes. So, you know, we are on Zoom and I, you know, the my dad died on the 1st of April 2020, which is like the ultimate dad joke, dying on April, on April Fool's, Fool's Day. Day. And um, in the afternoon and then, you know, Thursday morning at 8 o'clock, I was chairing an online meeting. And that's what I was taught, that you still show up, you know, um, put recovery first, no matter what. And I think the difference for me, and I do have, you know, a comparison of having this terrible grief years and years ago when my daughter died Mm. and Jessica. Mm. And then to have, you know, also this compounded, you know, grief recently was that I was able, I didn't feel the need to numb it or to hide from it. Well, you're equipped, weren't you? Mm. You know, you knew how to deal, how to, how to deal with it. You know, not well, many, not many people do. It's, it's, it's. You know. Well, I, I knew that kind of burying that stuff just was yeah. not, was not the way out. So it was, you know, stuff I, you know, I would shine a light on really mm. and talk about, um, and also just allow myself to feel the feelings. Mm. You know, it's okay to feel sad. Yeah. You know, like sure. it, it's really fucking sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, particularly with 
with Michael and Ken, they died really suddenly. Yeah. There was, you know, no yeah. kind of uh, build-up or illness or anything. It was, you know, they both very similar, you know, died in their sleep. They died in their own beds, you know. But, um, you know, I, I was suddenly, you know, I had... I had tools to deal with it, whereas mm. when I was younger, I did you not. You couldn't have, yeah. Mm. What did you learn the most out of those three great men, those three great pillars of your life? Mm. What, um, did they all bring something individually? Or? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Very, and three, um, you know, very different men, but, you know, who all kind of had a, a healthy respect for each other mm. uh, as well. Um, you know, Michael came from a very different world to... To Ken, mm. but um, there were, you know, I know that Michael had a, a admiration of him. Um, well, they're both visionaries, weren't they? Really? Yeah, ve yeah, very similar in that way. Yeah. And you know, they, um, you know, Michael was a, a risk taker, but mm. you know, the the one thing that I just always had so much admiration for him, he invested in people. Mm. You know, he believed in them, he backed them, he gave them second chances. Yes. Um, and, you know, he allowed them, uh, you know, a bit of a, a, a safety net too, to, you know, make mistakes, etc. And he, you know, stood by them. Um, you know, Ken was just a creative genius, really. Like, um, the interesting thing for, you know, we spent so much, like I spent more time with Ken West, waking hours with Ken West than anyone else of in course. the world yeah. in my whole life. Of course. Like more than what, my daughter, what, more than... Well, 18 years is a big doubt, but also your personal life with yeah, you, right? So, but, you know, in an office every day together, every day, you yeah. know, 18 years. And, you know, 90, I'd say 95% of the time I knew what he was thinking and now thinking was aligned, but that fucking 5% would throw me. <laughs> be, you know, what? And there would just be moments of, you know, madness or was it genius and sometimes it's a bit of both and that was michael too i guess yeah both of them yeah very yeah very but, similar you know ken would ha you know uh michael wouldn't miss a thing you know you'd think that he's distracted over here oh, but he's no. listening over Sharp there attack. and yeah and just had but you know ken just had a he was able to flip perspective on something and come at things from a completely different angle that um would sometimes catch me off guard, but was also, you know, stunning to witness. But ultimately, you drank the Kool Aid because you believed in it so much, right? Yeah, yeah. You know. And your dad just is dad the ground the ground kept you grounded, grounded, yeah. and just you know a, a great sense of um, you know integrity, you know, to everything. You know, he was, and I think one one the you know uh, obviously heartbroken when he died, but one thing that I was incredibly grateful for was that you know through staying sober as long as I have that I was able to restore his peace of mind which I had robbed him of when I was drinking yeah. and I was able to do that before he died and he knew that I was solidly where I am now. And that still gives you comfort today by the look yeah. of you yeah. <laughs> the sound of you. Let's just finish off on the big day out um, by asking this hypothetical question could a travelling festival like the Big Day Out exist in Australia today? I don't think so. Why? Interestingly enough, I was having this exact conversation uh, with Brett Murray mm. um, only a week or so ago, and it was uh, it was around um, the uh, you know Big Day Out anniversary. Mm -hmm. you know, um, the other 
other, you know, not long ago. And there were a couple of articles that come out of, you know, 10 years on from the last good day out, what does it... Um, but, you know, one, one of the things I've always felt this was that Big Day Out occupied a period of time that was kind of magic. And trying to replicate that, you could just never do it again. Yeah. And the other thing too, and, you know, it was a, an evolution and revolution within music, uh, technology, you know, and there were lots of different things, you know, like, you know, in that, that process of us getting bigger, you know, that, as I was saying at the beginning, I mean, not, I, we hardly even had mobile phones at the first show, <laughs> I know. let alone, you know, email, let alone the internet, et cetera. Yeah. yeah, and you think, how, how do we even, yeah. you know, but we did. Um, but also, you know, the uh, incredible change within music that happened. Yeah. And it, well, the mainstream caught up to the alternative world, yeah. for want of a better, yeah. it, it literally did. It did. And, you know, uh, the evolution of, Triple J yes. as well, Double J to Triple J, and you know their their part in that journey with us. Um, you know the economics of it. You know, mm. and what you know became one of the challenges towards the end of the big day out was the the fee expectations of artists. You know, like the overheads had got so incredibly high that you know, like if it was a business plan that you were presenting to a bank, they'd think that you were fucking crazy. Yeah, right. Because the risk was so high. Which I'm assuming is still a challenge to this very day. Yeah. And we'll get to the festivals in a yeah. minute, but yeah. But, um, you know, the other thing too that I think people sometimes forget, like, you know, they think about how big the big day out was. It didn't start that way. That's it right. was one show. That's right. Nine and a half thousand people in Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of grew incrementally, organically, and it gave us a chance to work, you know, and work through how to do things or whatever and you know to also get people on board you know like you know some of those early bands are on the show you know they go back to america or, or england or there and they talk about man we're just in australia what for their time, summer yeah. and it was so great and you know yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and it became this thing that people desired so you know we we could kind of pick and choose who we wanted because everyone wanted to be on the show and new events they're, they're going in really big yeah. Right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, and yeah. having to convince people. And it's also such a – there's so many more festivals it's a, now. It's so competitive. So, so com competitive. It's, a, it's saturated. It is. You know, and we've seen that over this past summer that a lot of festivals have, you know, pulled up. Or dropping off, right? Yeah. Mm. Like, they're, you know, it's not viable for them. You know, a soft season of sales, high overheads, poor dollar, et cetera, well, and just big risk. What do you see as the future of, of festivals in Australia? Because, I mean, you summed up what's happening right now, and I agree with you, it's probably probably too many festivals. The dollar's tough. Agents are probably commanding or asking for much bigger fees than they were, you know, say five, six, seven years ago. And there's What been, is the future for festivals in Australia? And I think the other thing too, you know, and this is a knock-on effect from... COVID is mm. that, you know, during that period, particularly while we couldn't get international artists into the country, that, our, you know, some of our wonderful Australian artists were the only artists that could play. So there, you know, there's an argument to say that, uh, you know, some of some of those artists have been overplayed a bit. I, and that I agree with that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I was noticing, particularly through the lens of um, 
my youngest daughter, Drew, who's almost 22, who's, you know, she is the target market. Mm. I'm not. Mm. But she said to me that it was sometimes difficult to tell the lineups apart because they all look really same. similar. Yeah, that's very true. You know? Um, and I think that um, kids have sort of become a little bit more discerning about where they're putting their money down, mm. you know, particularly if they're doing it tough financially. They're instead of, hey, we'll go to this, you know, like they're, make, they're look, sitting down and looking at things and analysing lineups and comparing stuff and instead of going to, you know, six festivals over the summer, maybe they're going to two. To two, yeah. And back to you now. How do you choose an act you want to work with to, to tour now in your new role at Frontier? What are the, do you have a, a list of prerequisites or is it based on gut? Is it based on pure analytics, metrics? Uh, lots of different things, actually. So I... Relationships, etc. Sorry, et my pause then was going, what year is it? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, uh, yeah, so I was appointed uh, tour director at the end of 2018 mm. and we're now 2024. Of course, there's a number of COVID years of in course. there. Of take out know, two years at least. Yeah, two and a half. So, um, you know, I was fortunate that, you know, my domestic roster included Midnight Oil who were willing to tour during that period and kind of roll the dice with us. Um, and not many were. It was really high risk during that period because, you know, our business model is based on having large gatherings of people and a tour party that can move freely between markets. Mm. And we were, you know, ah, borders closed, oh, capacities change, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, there's, I, there's a roster that I, in, I guess, inherited, I guess would be the, the right word, from my predecessor, Michael Harrison, who's one of my, you know, um, best mates and a lot of that roster we had worked on and built together before he um, took up a position with AEG Global mm. uh, in LA where he's done very well and he and I still work together so you know he um, Blackpink's a great example was uh, you know he did a, a global deal with them and um, I you know delivered the shows here as part of you know obviously the Frontier team but was the tour director on those shows um, and then I've explained Expanded, you know, that roster through a lot of it through relationships that, you know, I'll work with an agent or manager, etc., and they like what I do and they'll, hey, we've got this new act, etc. So I've got uh, a number of those that have come through. Um, also, I think my long tenure at Big Day Out, which, you know, it was bad at the end, but there were a lot of good years before of that course. and a lot of great relationships I had there. You know, the Chemical Brothers is a, a great example. Um, and that was a relationship that had continued from Big Day Out days, not just with the artists, with, but, you know, with their agent as well, but also Australian artists that, you know, they were very conscious that I made a lot of the decisions, particularly around our domestic lineup. Right. And that they had opportunities because of that that changed their career trajectory. So when they've had things that they've wanted to do now that, you know, they've sought me out to, to do them with when there's been, you know, anniversary tours sure. or whatever. Um, and, you know, that I've, I, I think too, it's, you, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the relationship stuff too, you know. Um, 
I like to think that I operate in a pretty ethical, transparent way, which isn't necessarily always to my benefit in this business, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it kind of shocks people sometimes yeah. too, but, uh, I'm, you know, I'm just not a, um, you know, I, I, I operate very on the table and I don't, and don't suffer fools gladly. Don't, yeah, That's but for also sure. too, you know, you, you've always been like that, though. Yeah, <laughs> but also, you know, if you look at what the promoting model is, it's kind of fucked because <laughs> it's all the risk on the promoter. Mm. Agent's not at risk; they haven't got any skin no, in the game. No. They get their, you know, ten, fifteen, whatever percent. And the labels, there, you know collecting the streams these days mm. used to be record sales or yeah. CD sales. But, you know, in a in a, a typical deal, you know, whatever the guarantee, it's then versus, you know, 85, 15%. Sure. So, you know, the promoter's not making money. It's until, a risk. It's a yeah. risk business. And, you know, and that can be a very calculated risk mm. that you're doing your research, looking at metrics, numbers. But also there's things that are beyond your control too, you know, that uh, and that can be anything from... The weather, particularly. Which, which we forget about sometimes in this yeah, country. Yeah, you know, when we're doing a lot of outdoor shows. But, you know, in Australia, you know, it's very obvious that the changing weather patterns mm. over the last number of years are having a higher and higher impact, you know, on everybody. But, you know, for us on the outdoor shows and the risk that that carries with it. Yep. Um, any number of things, you know, plane being delayed, truck breaking down, All an artist stuff. getting sick, an artist being embroiled in a scandal or, you know, suddenly having a massive moment on TikTok or something that no one could have predicted. You know, there's a lot of different, you know, variants that um, can affect the outcome of a tour. But, sure. you know, a lot of it comes down to really basic stuff of, you know, it's all in the numbers yeah, yeah. of, okay, you know, looking this at it. This makes sense. This doesn't make sense. It's yeah, and that, that can be around mm. the size of the venue mm. and particularly your ticket pricing. Sure. And one of the things I'm always very conscious of uh, is, you know, keeping pricing accessible for the audience that we're targeting. Are you finding that the touring industry is more risk-averse at the moment because of the various factors you just mentioned then? Or do you think there are still promoters out there literally risking taking a real risk on something that they hope pays off down the track. Like, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be respectful. Be um, res no, don't be respectful. Just, just lay it out. No. Uh, no, I don't, well, respectful in that, you know, I don't want uh, to be libelous. Yes. Um, there are definitely some cowboy promoters out there mm. that um, – and they just keep seeming to – get away with it too. They spring up with a, a new name for a new festival, um, something that, you know, and it, it just always reeks a little bit of dodgy. But um, and I don't, I don't know how they managed to, you know, con agents or artists to be on these new ventures all the time. Mm. But suddenly there's a lot of um, younger promoters that um, have got, you know, not, and I... We do stuff with them, you know, like they're, sure. as I said earlier, you know, I don't view myself as the target audience anymore. It doesn't mean that I can't um, work with new young artists, but I'm not necessarily the first to hear them. Sure. Um, and in that regard, I'm quite often reliant on uh, others' input. Mm. And a great role model for me in that is uh, 
Linda Bacetis, who very early on, you know, uh, Michael Cusick was kind of her ears. You know, she had two small young children and he would go and check out gigs, etc. And, you know, having that kind of, you know, being able to say, you know, tell me rather than thinking that... Well, now you've got a daughter who probably loves music as much as you do. Oh, she to- yeah, <laughs> so well, she, she totally turns me on yeah. to stuff. Um, and, you know, there's artists that I've been, you know, working with the, the last number of years, you know, Starcrawler out of L.A., yeah. um, uh, you know, the boys who, you know, aren't... You know, I've put them on quite a number of um, support slots, you know, on Arctic Monkeys and Royal Blood sure. and Hoodoo Gurus. And yeah. I just, man, I love those girls so much. But Drew turned me on to them. Yeah, kids are great, aren't they? Yeah. I went to the laneway on Sunday with my youngest son, who's 22, and he gave me a crash course in, oh, yeah. in the, pretty much the entire bill because I'd never heard of AJ Tracy. I, you know, I knew of Ray, um, but there was other acts in that bill that I'd never heard of and I really enjoyed. It's always, it always pays to have someone that you can trust in your, in your camp, whether it's a you know, kid or whether it's someone in your office. Um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, the thing is you know, that you're keeping an open mind on of stuff. Course, you know, of course. Like, um, you know, if, if we if we just stuck to you know what my taste, oh my is, god, it would be really quite limited. And and, and eclectic. <laughs> it'd be awesome. It'd be, but, it'd be eclectic. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and you know, I I I love um, you know, I've got a, a tour about to start with uh, Royal Otis. Yes. Who, um, you know, very uh, exciting band. Yeah, you know, local to me. I live in Bondi, um, and. Sold out tour. It's their first first time working with a promoter, and I was on it really, really early, and just yeah. was like, "I'm here when you're ready." When you're Didn't stop them too much. And Gave sp- them a couple of, you know, um, put them as support on the Alt J tour, and then when they were ready, they came to me. And then speaking of TikTok moments, it just so happens they covered, you know, Sophie Alex Baxter's dance, dance floor, and Burner. and it's gone yeah. off. It's yeah. it's it's the only Australian song on the chart yeah. right now. It's yeah. crazy, isn't it? And we, you know, we're starting a tour on uh, Friday. Timing. Sold out everywhere, (laughs) shebang. But that, um, you know, uh, Otis, who's the lead singer, his uncle is Steve Pavlovic. Yes. um, Who, you know, has had various incarnations and uh, roles in the industry from, you know, festival promoter, you know, head of the label. I love Pav. Always have. Um, but his younger brother, Darbor, and his wife, Colour, you know, known for a very long time. And um, Darbor posted, I think, a little video either on Instagram or Facebook of Royal Lotus in very fledgling stage. And I remember kind of looking and going, and he was like, oh, check out my son. I was kind of looking at Hang on, this is really good. <laughs> yeah, right. And kind of then, you know, was on it from really early on. But just a lovely bunch of guys, but in really great songwriters. And I look at that for me as, you know, it's a new signing to my roster, but they're career artists. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. He's a great songwriter, the yeah. kid. Um yeah. and yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really like I'm so excited to be on that journey with them yeah. and to see where it goes. It's going to be fun. You know, they've got smart people around them, great management agent, yep. etc. And you know they're they're building something that's going to have longevity. Who's your favourite act you've ever toured? Your fa- absolute favourite that you you know you'll always swear by. You'll you'll you know walk through the valley of death for them. Who's that act? 
And you, I know you've toured many and you've been involved with many, many careers, but surely there's a favourite. Uh, it takes on different forms. You know, um, artistically for me, mm. you know, PJ Harvey. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was someone that it, we had a lot of misses before we had a hit of getting her on the big day out. You know, she had confirmed and cancelled a number of different times before she finally came out for the first time in that fateful year of 2001. Um, and she, that was a very special moment in time, you know, was, uh, you know, she was riding off the back of, um, you know, the Stories album and which was the, yeah, and I just loved it, that album so much, but it also became very attached to that period of time. Mm. You know, you know, my daughter had just died. We'd have this death show. Um, Polly was incredibly supportive of me during that period. Um, and just really good company, wonderful artist, etc. Um, you know, I had a, a beautiful moment years later with the Flaming Lips, you know, dancing with them what a great on, band. on stage, you know, at the Adelaide Big Day Out. Um, I think... Uh, Were you dressed up as an animal or something? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I was. <laughs> this is like 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, like literally um, in 2004. The um, I have over the years working in festivals, developed a very strong aversion to sweat, to <laughs> other people's sweat. It's okay if you're exchanging other body fluids or whatever, but when a stranger brushes past you and leaves their sweat on you, <laughs> gross. Um, How did you cope with that gig then? <laughs> uh, well, you know, there would reach a point like a lot, you know, in the latter years they're, you know, particularly as the dynamic of the show changed and, you know, that, you know, Ken particularly, but me as well, we were now in the audience, we would get recognised. Yeah, right. So, um, <laughs> and, yeah, so I would not really go into the audience much unless I had a security guard with me because it was full <laughs> on. But That's anyway, funny. the that 2004 year with the flaming lips and I had, like right from the beginning, oh, I want to do that. Yeah. Like I want to get up and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. I was also aware that the the animal costumes, yes. <laughs> they were on the whole tour. And they would have been sweaty as. Oh, my, like <laughs> they hadn't been cleaned. And it wasn't just sweat. They, they stunk of oh, chemicals if you get my drift. I do. I yeah. do. So I was like, oh, there's no way I'm doing that. But you did. Well. Oh, go on. Go on. Ken West. Yes. Knowing <laughs> that I was balking at it because he turned up with a, a brand new animal suit for me. Oh, go to, on. Yeah, a blue bear suit. <laughs> like, so he risks a blue bear for, that, for yeah, that show. But he, yeah, and he was like, I'm not taking any more excuses. You're doing this. You're doing this. <laughs> and it was one of the most joyous <laughs> nights of my life. I like to that. take my radios off, put the phones and stuff. Yeah, and just have a dance. And he, he was so oh, thrilled. I love, I love that story. And, you know, like walked me up to the side of the stage. And, yeah, I just, it was probably the very first and, you know, kind of last time that I almost was able to, 
enjoy the show kind of as a punter almost. Well, you're working the the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's no, you know, and just to switch everything off. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. But then, you know, there's artists that I I love working with. Ironically, you know, the the Hoodoo Gurus um, in particular, Midnight Oil, I just love so dearly. Incredible band still going after all these years. Yeah. And, you know, have become, you know, great allies and friends over the years. And we we did great things together, Mm. you know, when... uh, when they were first looking to um, restart touring, you know, they hadn't toured for a long time. And Harry, Michael Harrison and I went in for a meeting with the band and John Watson, Watson yeah. at, and John's office in Surrey Hills. And I had done up this, because um, I knew, you know, they were talking to other promoters as well, but, you know, I knew that they had had um, some anxiety about, you know, the sizes venues and they you know they weren't sure how it was going to go how they were going to be received they hadn't been playing for a long time Peter had his time in politics etc so I had done up a, a massive like I bought one of those art books you know like folders yeah which is I don't even know what size it's a AO whatever yeah um and I hand done Every single venue that we had, were looking at, I'd printed out massive seating plans and done scale, you know, like, and had all the numbers in really big type. The detail. Yeah. And they were like, whoa, oh. <laughs> looking through it and stuff. And, um, yeah, and, you know, they... They, they took they, a chance. Yeah, they t- And, you know, for me that was... Um, there was another layer to that as well in that... Um, uh, Rob Hurst is, you know, very dear friends uh, with Rick Grossman, who's the bass player Hootie of Hootie Gurus. Gurus. Mm. And, um, and so he was aware of my journey and that yeah. I was in relatively early recovery. Yeah. But he also knew what that meant, that I was hardworking and wanting to prove myself. Yeah, totally. and, and that also that, I, you know, as I said earlier, was going to follow through on whatever said. Being I sober does work, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, you know, like they took me on that whole journey with them right, right till the end, of, you know, last show at the Horden. What a band. What yeah. A band. What, a sh- what a tour. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, like that, that uh, 2017 tour, you know, the Great Circle Tour. Just, you know, we broke every madness. You know, it was great. Record and just kept adding and adding shows. And it was just a juggernaut. But um, yeah, loved working with them. One last question for you, because we've been t- talking for quite a while. Is there anything you change about your working career from the past? That oh. Do you think about any sliding doors moments or do you think about what you could have done differently? Or or have you got based on, on your on your journey and based on this fantastic story of Tommy, have you got no regrets? It's difficult, you know. That's like, a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, well, and it's not. It's not. It's not a loaded question. It's just not. No, meant well, to, in some ways, it is because you know. Um, it's not meant to be. You know, I was involved in a show where someone died. Mm. You know, so mm. there have you know, there's absolutely been days when I've looked back at that day and thought about you know the decisions that were made in real time, and it's mm. you know if there'd been something done differently etc you know the different outcome but um i guess one thing about being at peace with where i am and being very present in my life now um i don't tend to you know look back with sadness or look forward with anxiety i you know kind of keep it very much in the day and if anything um 
you know, I'm, I've just had this really, really deep gratitude mm. that I got to have a second go. Mm. That's great. Mm. Great story. You've got great passion and you're still doing it. You know, we're, we're all very lucky, aren't we, the ones that can still do it. Oh, yeah. You know, I look mm. at where I am now and, you know, particularly as a woman in this industry. Absolutely. And, you know, there is, there's not that many of us that have had a level of career mm. that might be comparable to a man's. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. And that is not for lack of skill or work, etc. Yep. And, you know, there are so many amazing women that I worked with in the early mm. days. And some of them, you know, like they're still, you know, some of my closest friends. You know. like Linda, who's, you know, we just Linda, talked about earlier. You know, Jessica DeCruz. Jessica, yeah. You know, was... Millie Milgate, you know, like have all... Who are running, running big organisations oh, yeah. now. Yeah. 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 But there were so many more that didn't make it that, you know... Yes, for that could have made it. Yeah. yeah. And that just, you know, maybe didn't have those couple of sliding door moments that I had that changed the trajectory yeah. um, of their careers. But, you know... At the same time, you know, those little moments of luck were followed through with fucking hard work, oh, mate. <laughs> of course. Well, let's finish on that. Thanks so much for your time, Sahara. Your one big, obviously, Royal Otis, uh, you know, on tip of your tongue, but the one big pick for the exploding act in the next two years. Royal Otis, we, we've talked about. Is there anyone else you got your eye on that you, you think are destined for big things? And we'll finish on that. And I'll just stop the tape. There's two acts that I'm looking at at the moment that I've Don't got say you off- can't say. I can't oh, fucking say. Sarah. I've got offers out on them that, uh, you know. We're going to leave it at that then. Yeah. You disappoint me. <laughs> I've never disappointed Thank- a man in my life, Michael Breezy. You haven't, Sahara. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Vinyl Tap. Don't forget to like it or rate it on your preferred platform or direct message me on my Instagram account, VinylTap underscore the podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback or answer any questions. Until next time.